Last week was almost perfect for Easter, to be honest with you, except for one thing. My mom and dad weren't here. My folks live just south of Chicago. They are usually at our church on Easter, but last Sunday was their new pastor's first Sunday, so they decided to go to their church. If you remember, uh, last Labor Day, my mom and dad's pastor at the age of 62 announced to the church um, that he had been diagnosed with cancer. And very sadly, two weeks later, he died. Um, Two weeks from finding out he had cancer, he was gone. Uh, And it shook my mom and dad in their church really to the core. And I I just tried to keep up with my folks and just often see how they were doing, often see how the church was doing. And after one of the conversations with my mom, I I was driving with Danielle. We were headed down to Springfield to watch one of Christian's games. Um, I said, man, I don't think my mom is, is, uh, is doing great. I don't think they're doing great because their pastor also went to college with them. They all went to the same college together. And I said, I think the reality of having someone your age die so quickly and being so close to it has really, really been hard for them. And Danielle took that moment to ask me a, uh, a deep but kind of morbid question at the same time. As we were talking about that, she said, Christian, do you think you would have any regrets uh, if your mom or dad died suddenly? Do you think you'd have any regrets? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, you know, I don't, obviously I'd be crushed, but no, I don't think I would have any regrets. I mean, we spent so much time together as a family when I was young. We have been so massively intentional about seeing my mom and dad since I've lived in Kansas City and they've been just south of Chicago. We go on vacation together every year for the last 10 years. We go play golf and watch baseball at spring training. They're down all the time to watch the kids' activities. We're up for holidays. I don't, I'd miss them, but I don't think I'd have any regrets. That wouldn't be a word that I would use. And then she asked me the million-dollar question. She said, would you have any regrets if I died? And I knew this could be tricky. So I, you know, I thought for a minute... Before I answer, because I thought if I say yes too quickly, she's going to say, I knew you would say that, and here's the things I want you to do so you don't have regrets. I knew she'd have a list. And I know if I said no really fast that she would take that as you can die now, and I don't really care, which is not what that would have meant. So I thought for a minute, and I said, you know, for the last 17 years, we've been so intentional about our married life. We go on a date every week. We try to take a day off together every week. We go away once a quarter for at least a night. We go away once a year for at least three or four days. And I said, you know, we've, we've been so intentional about having a strong marriage and a good marriage. I mean, I miss you, but I don't, I don't think I would regret anything. Like, I don't think we've just missed anything. And she said, okay, good. She went to thinking about whatever she was thinking about, but it triggered in my mind a Rolodex of people in my head. I just started thinking about people in my life. And I thought, who would I have regret if they died who, who, when they die, will I have regrets about? And I thought for a couple minutes, and then I finally looked over at Danielle, and I said, I would have regrets if one of the kids died. And she said, what? Like she got sucked back into this conversation she thought was over. And I said, I would have regrets if one of, the, if one of our kids died. My son's 15, my little girl's 13. And she said, why? And I said, because I feel like they so often get the last of me in, the least of me. If, if something were to happen to one of our kids at this juncture in life, I think I'd really regret the pace that I've lived uh, while, while they've been alive because there are far more times that I tell them to hold on for somebody than I ask somebody to hold on for them. There are very few times I end a phone call and I say, I gotta go, my son's coming. I gotta go, my daughter's coming. But there are too many times to count where I tell my kids, just hang on a minute. I'm on the phone. I got to finish this. I got to do this. And I thought, you know, I, I, would, I would have regrets about the way that I 
have interacted with my kids, and, and, I, and I want to change. Last fall, as this conversation was happening, our church was in the middle of a series called Fixer Upper. We were studying the book of Nehemiah. We were not studying the book of Nehemiah to learn anything about family. We were studying the book of Nehemiah to learn how to live intentionally, rebuilding the dream for your life. But in Nehemiah chapter 4, there was a verse that I didn't memorize as much as it like memorized me. It was a verse that I never wrote down on a card so I wouldn't forget it, but it was a verse that like jumped off the pages of scripture and it just landed on my heart and I've not been able to shake it. I did not preach on this verse last fall when we studied this series, but it's one I want to kick this series off with. You don't have to turn to it. It's not our main text today, but in Nehemiah 4, 14, Nehemiah told the men he was leading this, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes, fight for your families. When I read that in this season of reflection and regret, I made a personal declaration, and that personal declaration was this, I want a strong family. And I not only only want a strong family, I'm going to be willing to fight for a strong family. And as we enter this series that we're calling Family Strong, what I'm looking for is for people in our congregation to make the same declaration, people who want strong families. And not just people who will say it, but people who will fight for strong families. So whether you're here today as a single parent, whether you're here today as a two-parent family and your kids are in the kids' ministry or sitting beside you, whether you're here as a teenager whose mom and dad don't come to church or as a young single who's kind of fighting for your whole family, whether you're here as grandparents, what we're looking for are people who say, I want to have a strong family. I want to fight for family and I want to be trained to help people who care about family fight deeply for their family, for their marriages, for their kids, for what God has given them. So I personally declare I want a strong family and I'm going to fight for a strong family. I heard a pastor last fall say this, that if the families in America cared as much about their house as they did the White House, the world would be a different place. He said, if, our, if people in our churches cared as much about their street as they did Wall Street, every community in America would be better. And I believe that. Like I heard that and I identified with that. And I thought, you know what? You're, you're right. And I'm going to reset my regrets. At the age of 38, I'm going to stop the way I'm living and I'm going to try to start living differently. And I'm going to reset regrets. I'm going to fight for a stronger family. And I believe, believe it or not, I believe many of you are here for the exact same reason. Do you know why most people come to church or come back to church? The statistics of the church trends are kind of staggering of why most people come to church. Maybe you don't fit in this crowd, but perhaps you do. Do you know that most people who grow up in church, like me, born and raised in church, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible quizzing, Awana, you name it. I tell people the only drug problem I had in my life is my parents drugged me to church every time the doors were open. That was me. I was that kid. But if you grow up in church, do you know that at 18 years old, more than 80% of teenagers raised in church disconnect spiritually and they're gone? It means for the teenagers in the room. There's a lot of the teenagers in the room. If there are 10 teenagers in your section, two of them, At 18, we'll stay plugged in spiritually. The other eight are gone. So how long are they gone? Sometimes for forever. Say, well, how does anyone ever come back? Well, the church trends that we study tell us this, that many return to the church as young marrieds because marriage is much harder than they thought and they need help. And they remember the church can help me in this. You know, they come back because they want to fight for their marriage. So there are people who, they may have been out of church, but they come back because they're fighting for family. The, the largest group to return are young parents. 
Because they have a child and they think, you know what, I want my child to grow up to know God like I did. I want my child to have my church experience when I was a kid. So they bring their children back. The largest group of people who come back to church after college are people who have their first kid and think, I want my kids to be raised in church like I was. And that's a positive thing because they're saying, I'm going to fight for my child's faith. A third group that comes back are parents of teenagers. And usually at this point, it's because they need the church to help with a teen that doesn't love God, live for God. They've got a teenager that's engaged in substance abuse. They've got a teenager engaged in depression. They've got a teenager failing school, and they come to the church saying, help me. It's a good reason to come to church. They're saying, I'm fighting for my teenager's life and future. We also see parents of adult children come back to church because they're watching their kids and their grandkids and they're growing worried and they're saying, you know, I don't want to one day be laying in hospice talking to my grandchild who does not have the same faith that I do. So they get re-engaged kind of as family legacy leading their families. Really the only group not listed there of those who come back to church for family are singles. And if you're in here today and you're a single, statistics tell us that singles come back to church because they want to connect more deeply with God and more deeply with the faith community. Actually, single adults have the strongest and healthiest faith reason to return to a church. They want God to do something deeper in them. I was with one of my church planning coaches just a few weeks ago, and he said, Christian, if your church has not figured out a way to minister specifically to singles and to leverage their heart, their faith, their commitment for your church and for your community, you're missing something. So this fall, We're going to start setting up a leadership team of people who are passionate about ministering to adult singles at our church. And then next winter, we're going to take a retreat together, like like an adult youth camp that none of the married people are allowed to come on. And we're just going to go have fun. And we're going to try to reignite and inspire the faith of the singles in our church and figure out how collectively we can unleash more of Jesus on our church and our community. It's going to be awesome. But if you're here today, specifically because of family, family strong. I want want to have a strong family. I want to fight for my family. You're in the right place for the next month. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. You can also fire up your Journey Church International app. Reach in your bulletin and pull out your notes if you're not already following along. Um, And we will today study the life of Jacob. The next four weeks, I'm going to look at the life of four families And we're going to learn from those. Today's Jacob. Next week's Job. Two weeks from today is David. And then on Mother's Day, a message that I've never even considered, but I'm exciting to preach. I'm preaching specifically to mothers who are basically leading on behalf of their family. I'm going to talk about two moms, Zipporah and Rebecca, who basically said, I'm not going to wait for my husband to lead. Here's where we're going. And they took over and started leading their family spiritually. So moms and grandmas, I want you in church on Mother's Day because we're going to see how to just take, take the horse by the reins and go spiritually. It's going to be awesome. But today we study the life of Jacob. And here's what we read as Jacob resets his life spiritually. Genesis 35, 1 through 7. It starts off with the word then. I need you to circle the word then. You can't read the word then without asking, okay, what comes before then? I'll tell you that in a minute. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I'm going to build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who's been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, 
in the land of Canaan. That's modern-day Israel. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, which means the God of Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. So then, let me give you some quick background to catch you up to what is happening here. Jacob, then God spoke to Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is someone who two out of every three people on planet earth believe God spoke to with a special plan for humanity. Every Muslim, every Jew, every Christian you know begins with God speaking to Abraham. Where the Jews and Muslims split and where the Judeo-Christian theology splits is in which son of Abraham's got the blessing. We believe it was Isaac and then his grandson Jacob. So Abraham had this promise that he was going to have a land, he was going to have a people, And from that land and with that people, he's going to bless the entire world. Abraham was so diligent about that that in order to claim God's promise, Abraham told his son Isaac he could never leave the promised land. Not even to go play with friends, not even to go find a wife. We don't read in scripture that Isaac ever left the geography of modern day Israel because Abraham said the land and the people in this land, God's going to use to bless the entire world. Jacob was different. In order to save his life, Jacob had to leave the promised land because he was fleeing from his twin brother Esau who wanted to kill him for stealing his inheritance. And for 20 years, Jacob lived outside of the promised land. But more than that, he really lived outside of a faith relationship with God while his family and his business grew. And when Jacob got sick of living for his job, when he got sick of living for his possessions, when he realized that didn't bring peace, he and his family headed back to the promised land and back to the promised Maker, And that's where we pick up in Genesis 35. And it's not just that they returned. It's how they returned. It's what Jacob did on the edge of the land before crossing back over into the promise. Jacob said, here's some things in our life we need to get in order. Because when these are in order, we're going to be able to be who God created us to be. We're going to be able to have the family God created us to have. So what are those three things? Look at verse 2 one more time if you have your Bible open. Three things that allow us to reset regrets, lay a foundation for a strong family. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Number one, get rid of the foreign gods. Get rid of the foreign gods. Most of you are thinking, okay, check this one off. I don't have any foreign gods in my house, Christian. We don't have any idols. We don't have any incense. We don't pray on any altars. We should be good there. Don't have any foreign gods. But you have to understand, you may not know the foreign gods that you have. So I have a confession to make. Um, I have never watched even a single minute of a single show, um, episode of the show Survivor. Never seen it. Don't know anything about it. All I know is that they put some people on an island And the last one left gets a million bucks. I don't know if you kill the rest like Hunger Games. I don't know if there's a singing competition and the best one stays. I don't know if it's the one who loses the most weight. I know nothing about this show. So they put people on an island and the last one on wins a million bucks. But it is one of the most popular shows in TV history. Time Magazine says one of the top 100 shows that's ever been on. TV Guide listed as the 39th greatest television show that's ever been created. It's getting ready to air its 34th season. Why? So we like to watch survivors. I mean, we, we, we root for people who can survive. And if that's the case, we should like Jacob. In spite of his foreign gods, we should root for Jacob because Jacob was a survivor. Now, you have to know a little bit about foreign gods to understand the background of this. So as we read through the Old Testament, you see often that when Israel went into another country, that country would have its own God, but often they were the same. We see three 
mentioned all the time in the Old Testament. The first is Baal. Baal was the god of agriculture. He was a Canaanite god. Remember, Canaan is the modern-day land of Israel. Baal was the god they counted on. They also had a goddess named Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. She was also a Canaanite god. She was kind of seen in their mythology as kind of maybe the wife of Baal, where Baal allowed the land to produce fruit. Ashtoreth allowed allowed the women to produce children. And then we see Dagon, who was the god of the sea, who was actually a Philistine god. So we see Dagon a lot kind of in Judges um, and in the early life of First and Second Samuel and the life of David. But here's, here's what you need to know. All these foreign gods were connected to survival. Like these foreign gods were all about the people surviving. Baal was the god of agriculture. Agriculture was the business of almost everyone. Like everyone was a farmer or they had herds and flocks that they had to get to good pasture. Everyone's business was agriculture in Canaan. Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility, but here's what you need to understand. In order for business to go good, you had to have a big family. People didn't have employees, they had families. So the employees in your agriculture business were your family, and your 401k was your kids. You didn't have retirement. Your children took care of you after you were too old to take care of yourself. So people depended on Ashtoreth basically to make their business go and to make sure they were going to be taken care of later life. And Dagon was the god of the sea. All the coastal people worshiped Dagon because basically fishing and training were the industry of their world. They had to be able to get out on the sea and come back safely. Sail to another country, get some supply, come back and sell it. They had to make it safely. They had to be able on the shores to go fishing and collect some fish, which they could feed their family with. So these gods were all about survival. They all, in a sense, were built around helping people survive. And here's what you need to understand about Israel in the Old Testament. Here's the fact. Most foreign gods that Israel worshiped were just backup plans in case God failed them. Like that's, that's why they kept these around. These gods were the backup plans. Like in case the God of Israel wasn't there, we'll go worship this God. It's the backup plan. And for Jacob, this was dangerous. For Jacob, these became enemies of his family spiritually. And here's what you need to understand. For us, believe it or not, these things happen. For us, we can create family enemies when we worship or we prioritize foreign gods, or we keep close by backup plans for when we think God might fail. You see, here's what a family enemy is spiritually. The enemy of a strong spiritual family is the priority of security in something other than God. It's how you find out if you've got a foreign God in your life. What gives you more comfort in your life than God? Man, I had a mentor in my life who punched me between the eyes spiritually as we were starting this building project. And I was just talking to him about the fear I had as a young church planner about building a church. And I told him how, how nice the first few years of our church had been because we always had so much money in the bank and we, we kind of had this security. And I hated to spend it all on a building because, you know, what if we didn't have any money in the bank? And he looked me right dead in the eye. And so let me ask you a question. Do you sleep better knowing that there's money in the bank than you do knowing that there's a God in heaven? And I said, Yeah. And he said, then you have a foreign God. What you're saying is what allows you to sleep peacefully is your bank account, not your God. You have a foreign God. He said, you have an idol. You have an idol in your life that gives you security. You know how you know you have an idol in your life? If the day after an election, you have no hope in your future. 
you know that your future is tied more to the White House than heaven when one election can cause you to lose all hope and security for your future. Those are foreign gods. And we could go on and on and on, but all of us need to begin to understand what foreign gods do I have in my life? What gives me more peace and security than God in heaven? Because that thing will eventually become my purpose. It will become my priority. And my faith in my family will get less and less and less of me. So this can have more of me because it gives me peace. What are your foreign gods? For most of us, maybe it's our job. It's our careers, it's our paycheck, it's our savings account or our 401ks, it's networking opportunities. What are the things that you continue to place in front of your faith and your family? Those foreign gods have to be put away if you want to have a strong family. Now listen, our jobs and careers don't have to be enemies. They don't have to be enemies of our family. They don't have to be enemies of God's kingdom. As a matter of fact, if we learned how to leverage our jobs and our careers for our families and for the kingdom of God, they could be the greatest things that we ever had. But if the kingdom of God and the strength of our family continues to come last because of something, it can become a foreign God. And listen, at the very height of Jacob's career as an ancient businessman, he had everything he could dream of except peace with God and time with his family. 20 years, two decades of building a business that was larger than he ever imagined, had more resources than he ever imagined, more land than he ever imagined. And he looked around and said, time out. Like, this is not who God has called me to be, and this is not how God has called me to live my life. God hasn't called me to have everything but peace with him and time with my family. Like, I think I'm headed in the wrong direction. So he called his family together and said, it's time, time out, time out. It's time to go home. It's time to go home and be who God has called us to be. If this is you, it's time to figure out how to reset the foreign gods and go home. For Jacob, it was time to put away the foreign gods. Secondly, he told his family, we need to purify ourselves. Put away the foreign gods and purify yourselves. Now, if you've ever been on a mission trip to a third world country, like a serious third world country, the first thing that you notice and the longest lasting thing that you'll remember is the smell. Because if you've ever been to a third world country, it's not, it's not like America. They don't have sanitation systems like we do. They don't roll their trash out to the end of the driveway and have somebody come pick it up. It just doesn't happen there. They don't have sewage systems like we have. Sewage doesn't all flow to some place where no one's around and, and where no one can pay attention to it. It just doesn't happen there. And the personal hygiene standards in different countries are different. So the moment you sometimes get on a plane or step off a plane, the smell changes. It's the first and most constant experience of a mission trip to a third world country. So you can only imagine 4,000 years ago, the smell of life as a shepherd farmer in that day and age. I mean, these people not only probably didn't bathe weekly, when you really study ancient Near Eastern history, probably they maybe bathed monthly, maybe. It just wasn't something that they did. But when they did it spiritually, when they, when they practiced ritual cleansing, cleansing not because, it, like, take a bath, it's time to eat dinner, but they had ritual cleansing. It was always highly symbolic of a desire for a changed and cleansed heart. 
like 4,000 years ago when this story's unfolding, for someone to just out of nowhere cleanse themselves, basically this ritual cleansing was saying, God, if I could clean my heart, I would. My body's going to have to do. God, if I could change my heart, I would. But I want you to see by what I'm doing physically that I desire for you to change and clean my heart. That's what Jacob was telling his family. It's time to change our hearts. So let me ask you a question in the year 2017. Is it possible that we need a change of heart when it comes to what we see as success for a strong family? I mean, let me pause and ask that again. Is it possible that we need a change of heart in what we see as success for our family? If you won't even consider this question, there's probably not a lot you can learn in this series, but if you'll open up your heart to that idea... And I think your eyes could be open to a whole new world. I mean, is it possible that we focused on the wrong things that will allow us to be strong and healthy spiritually? I read an article a few weeks ago that was done two years ago, a research study that was done a few years ago on the happiness of children in the world. They studied 15 countries to see which children, thousands of children, were the happiest They came away from the study and they said, by far, American children have the most resources and opportunities given to them. Yet, the United States of America ranked fifth globally in childhood happiness behind countries like Mexico, Spain, Brazil, and Germany. And beyond that, when they looked at American kids and the happiness of American children... They saw that of American American children, African-American children were the happiest, followed by Hispanic-American children who were the second happiest, followed by Asian-American children who were the third happiest, and the least happy children in America were white children whose parents were middle-class to affluent people. Those were the least happy people, least happy children in America. This is not surprising for those of us who travel the world and go on mission trips because we go expecting to be the saviors of the world for these kids and we show up and they seem happier and more full of life than any American kids we've ever met. And it's like, wait a minute, like they don't have anything. They seem so much happier than our kids. You know, we have kids in our nursery today and every one of those ethnic groups, African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, white middle class to affluent Americans, where, where do you fall? And how have you defined success for your family? We had a student in our church a few weeks ago who had a, a friend take his own life tragically. And we were texting just a little bit about what do, what do I say to my friends and how do I handle this and what do I do? And as we were just chatting back and forth, he made the comment, you know, a lot of my friends are depressed and talk about killing themselves. And I did youth ministry for 10 years. That didn't surprise me one bit. The pressure cooker of the American suburban teenage world. It doesn't always cause happiness. Sometimes it causes the exact opposite. So is it possible we focused on the wrong things? You know, when they, when they ask kids, American kids, tell us when you're happiest. What are the things that make you the happiest? You know the three things that American kids said made them the happiest when they felt happiest with no stress? Number one, time with family. What makes you feel happy? Time with family. In this answer was time with extended family as well. Secondly, time with friends. Unscheduled time to be a kid with friends. 
And then number three, free time. They're just hanging out by themselves. When American kids were asked, what makes you happy? They said, this makes me happy. So let's, let's look at the list there. Is that what your week looks like next week for those of you who have children? For those of you who are grandparents, is that what your grandpa- grandchild's list looks like next week? For those of you who are, in here who are teenagers, is that what your week looks like next week? Or is it school and tests and homework and this sport and then that sport and then maybe a little job and get ready for the ACT and SAT and we wonder why our kids are so stressed out. I mean, all of you are like me, right? You've bought your kid a $100 gift at Christmas and watched them play with the box instead of the gift and you thought to yourself, I could have gone to U-Haul, bought five empty boxes, wrapped them up, and this would be the greatest Christmas ever and I'd have had some money left for me. Like, like we, we get maybe sometimes... We pursue things that aren't as valuable to our kids as they are to us. I was talking with my parents a few years ago, trying to explain to them why why our family was so busy, too busy to go and see them as much as they would like or we would like. And I made the unfortunate comment to my parents, you just don't understand. I grew up in a real small town in southern Ohio. You just don't understand. We live in a, you know, a, a big city, and there's just so many more opportunities here. And you know, there's so many things you've got to be engaged in if you're going to be successful. And it's just different now. It's just different now, Dad. And I remember my mom and dad saying, you had all those opportunities growing up. We just didn't think they were as important for you as you do for your kids. We chose other things were important. And after he pulled the knife out of my back and, you know, kind of giving me a hug, it was like, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. How much of this is me and how much of this is them? See, this thought of purifying yourself, it's having a change of heart where you change the definition or maybe for the first time you set a definition of what it means to have a strong family. Put away the foreign gods. Purify yourself. Number three, change your clothes. Now, almost everyone in here today has already changed their clothes. I looked at people who were coming in today. I saw maybe one or two teenagers who are here and what they slept in. For the most part, it looks like everyone has changed their clothes at least once. Most of us will change our clothes three or four more times today and dozens of times this week. Not in this day and age. In the ancient world, a change of clothes was rare and it could be considered a new and a marked identity. It meant that you truly wanted to be seen as someone else. Joseph, when his dad gave him a coat that he didn't give to the rest of his brothers, was marking him as special, standing out in that family. Adam and Eve, when they were separated from God in the Garden of Eden, and God made them skins to to cover themselves, their relationship with him was changed, and they had a different posture because they had clothes. King David, when he worshiped, didn't want to wear the kingly robes. He said, I don't want to be a king when I worship. I just want to be a person worshiping. He understood clothing was identity. So let me ask you this question. What does your family believe is the most important thing? Let me phrase it this way. What's your family's identity? Like if we could stamp your nameplate, your last name means What? What would you say your family's identity is according to your kids? What is success for your family? Being a Newsom for me means this. What does it mean to be successful? Have you ever thought about that? Because you're shaping that narrative for your kids. You know if you know their batting average but not their grade point average, you're saying something to them about what you consider successful. Do you know if you know how fast your daughter runs the mile, but not the troubles in school that she's running from? You're saying something to her about what you consider successful. 
Do you know if you always know who America is at war with, but you never know who your kids are at war with at school, in the hallways, in the locker rooms, at the lunch tables, you're telling your kids something about what you believe is really important. Do you know if you'll travel all over to watch your kids use their hands to play instruments that create beautiful music, but you never take their phone and you check what their fingers are typing into their phone, you're telling them something about what you believe is important. Do you know if you'll travel all over the country with your kid participating in activities, but you'll never as a family go downtown and serve the poor together, you're telling them something about the identity of success for your family. Here's the cool thing in this series. You're going to have a chance this month and moving forward. You're going to have a chance to choose and to change the things that will mark the spiritual identity of your family. You get to, you get to choose because most of us, when I ask that question, being a your last name means what, you think, I've never really thought about that. I hadn't thought about that until a few years ago. I showed up at one of our, our child parent dedications. Today at 2.30, I'll dedicate 16 children on this stage. Our biggest ministry crowd of the day will be our 2.30 child dedication service. And when kids get dedicated at our church, their parents have to come up with three words that describe who they want their child to be at 18 years old. It's awesome. I'd never seen anything like it until it was done at our church from a pastor who came from a different church. And basically, they're saying this little infant, some of them as young as six and eight weeks old, some of them up to a year, they're saying this infant, who right now is none of these things, but because we're in his life and he's ours, she's ours, we want them to become this. They use words like brave and courageous and strong and kind and loving and generous. They basically say success for this little person looks like this. Every time I see that, I think, man, I should write words for my kids. And then I leave and get busy and I don't. And then I come back the next time and I think, oh shoot, I forgot. I'm going to write words for my kids. And then I leave and I forget. And this has just gone on now for four years. And I decided no longer. Here's what we're going to do as a family. We're going to sit down and we're going to choose our words. What does it mean to be a Newsom? I get to choose one. My wife gets to choose one. I'm letting Christian and Casey choose one. And we're going to say that's what it means to be a Newsom. Like for the rest of time, this is what it means to be strong and successful as a family. These words are who we are and what we believe is most important. What would your three words be? Every week in this series, I'm going to give you a family strong moment where I'm going to make your family go work together, spend time together. This week, I want you to come up with your words. And as you come up with your words, I want you to think about the words that you once said to describe your great-great-grandchildren at their high school graduation one day. I want you to think about words that you'll whisper into your daughter's ear as you're walking her down the aisle and the filter you'll use to say yes or no to the person that they want to marry one day because this is what it means to be a part of your family. I want you to get proactive and set goals. And if you're into the social media world, I'd love for you to share them with us. I'd love to hear your words because they might make my words a little sharper and a little better. So as you pick your words, if you do any social media stuff, hashtag them with JCI Family Strong. Put them on social media. And together, let's dream of what strength and success looks like. And for those of you who are singles, let's put my arm around and talk to one of our single gals in the back crying her eyes out because she said, my family is nothing like what you mentioned. Here's the good news for singles. You don't have to reset culture. You get to set it. Like you get to pick. Before it breaks, you get to fix it. Like before you start heading off in the wrong direction, you get to write the map. So for those of you who are singles, I mean, I, I envy you 
getting to do this now because you're saying we're going to head in the right direction the entire time I have a family. Put away the foreign gods, purify yourself, change your garments. And then finally, Jacob and his family said, we're going to change what life revolves around. So we see number four, the altar. We see this altar in Genesis 35, 2. He says, here's these three things. Here's this equation that's going to help us spiritually. But he said, after we do those things, 35, 3, then come, let us go up to Bethel where I'm going to build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who's been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob's new life was going to revolve around his God and it was going to revolve around his family. And that would all be represented in this altar, which actually means a whole lot more to me probably than it does to you at this moment in time. And let me tell you why. Let me draw the picture and then let me show you a picture. If we drop down to Genesis 35.10, we see that after Jacob built this altar, God appeared to him. And in Genesis 35.10, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you're no longer going to be called Jacob. Your name is going to be Israel. So he named him Israel. In response to that, look at verse 14. It says, Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it. You know, last, the last time I was in Israel, we got a chance to go into a live archaeological dig that hardly anyone in the world has been to to see some fascinating new discovery that they had made. And they took us down into, I mean, like an Indiana Jones type dungeon. I mean, a metal door on the side of a mountain that was padlocked shut with dirty, rusty chains. They swung it open and there's like lights hanging. There's dirt falling from the ceiling. There's people carrying buckets out working. And I thought this is going to be the coolest experience I've ever had or they're going to kill all of us in here and no one will ever know. This is the craziest thing we've ever done. And they take our group in and they open this, this big metal box that's there. I've got a picture of it that I want to show you. And the tour guide, knowing that I was the pastor, looked at me and said, do you know what that is? I thought, of course I know what it is. I've, I've been to Bible college. I have a couple seminary degrees. You know, I'm a pastor. Of course I know what it is. It's a rock. Um, and he was like, you know, it's like, no, I have no idea what that is. And he started describing this place to us. And he said, we know the place that we are right now is 4,000 years old. We can tell by what we've dug through and what we are now sitting on, we can tell by what we're finding the exact age of places. That's how it works in archaeology. And he said, we found a temple down here that we know is 4,000 years old. And he said, right next to the altar, we found this rock sitting up. He said, now here's the strange thing about this rock sitting up. He said, this rock is less than three inches thick. And he said, you could actually go and kick it down if you want, which is why it's encased in that. And he said, somebody took great care to protect this standing monument thousands of years ago so it would never be torn down because anything would have made it fall down but it's still standing I said alright now he's got my attention I said so what is it and he said well the only written history we have from this entire region 4,000 years ago is that there was a king named Melchizedek who had a friend named Abraham and Abraham's grandson when he was running from one family to the next he probably stopped and stayed with this king near his temple he fell asleep and he had a dream where God opened up the heavens and ladders came down and angels were coming and going and Jacob had an experience with God where he woke up and said this can be nothing other than the gate of heaven so he set up this stone and he, and he poured 
anointing oil on it and said, this is nothing other than the gate of heaven. And then he left and he was gone for 20 years. But when he decided it was time to come back spiritually, the Bible says he came back to this place and to this rock and he took that pillar and he poured oil on it again and he reset spiritually. I looked at the guy and I said, are you telling me that we are standing at the location of Jacob's ladder, the gateway to heaven in one of the Old Testament texts? And he said, that's what people like me believe that this is. I can't tell you the feeling that went through my body as I thought about not just the events that happened there, but the father who took back his family there. The father who said, you know what? I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to have everything but peace with God and time with family. I want to do things differently. The father who said, put away the foreign gods. The father who said, purify yourself. The father who said, change your clothes. The father whose name would be changed from Jacob to Israel. You know what the name Israel means? It means one who struggles with God and man. When you study the rabbis and what they write about Jacob's name change, they said it took God so long to change Jacob's name because no man can know how desperately they need God until they've had a few decades of struggling in life without him. Maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with God and man in life. God told Jacob, for the rest of your life, here's what you're going to be known for. When you struggle, struggles are going to cause you to reset your life around God and family. For the rest of your life, you as a man, Israel, will be known as someone who, when they struggle, resets to God and family. And then your family will be known that way. Then your nation will be known that way. Then a Messiah will come and develop followers who, when they struggle, will know struggles lead to a resetting of life around God and family. You know, the next three weeks, we're going to look deeply into really practical ways to lead your family strong. Like I'm going to say, do this every week, every month, every quarter, every year. Practical, practical steps. But it begins with a question. It begins with the question today that God asked Jacob 4,000 years ago, are you time to reset? Is it time for you to reset? If you don't reset, will you live with regret? And if you don't want to, will you open your heart up today in the next few weeks to say, all right, God, if there's a different, better, stronger way to do this, I'm in, just show me. Would you bow your heads as we consider those things and close in prayer today?